0: This is the A. I'm Reg Clay. Uh, Normally, Norman G would be here, but he is taking a three day uh, vacation with his wife, Mara. And uh, this is the A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. We want to thank Central Works for sponsoring the A. Uh, Central Works is um, headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Leifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. And I have a fantastic guest. a lady who is a, uh, a playwright, a poet. Uh, you've been published in the New York Times, Allison Luderman. Uh, Allison, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic, especially now. I mean, uh, I tell you this week, Norman, uh, Norman, Norm, Norm and I've been talking just you know politically, and it's yeah. it's all of us have been on pins and needles, but uh, finally the sun is out. So, <laughs> how have you been? How have you been taking? Uh, I guess you know this whole political landscape and. I don't oh. know the, the the end of the age of Trump.
1: <laughs> Please God, <laughs> yeah, like everybody. I mean, like everybody. Last Saturday was so incredible when it was finally called for Biden. You know, we got we went got in the car and drove down to the lake, Grand Lake, in front of Grand Lake Theater. People were dancing and singing, and we didn't get out of the car because it was too many people and you couldn't park. But it was just the joy it was. Wonderful, And we just want to be part of it. And tears were shed. I mean, both of us, I, my, my husband and I both cried with relief, I think, and joy. And of course, the last, you know, the way Trump is acting, I, it, it feels a lot like King Lear to me. I mean, since we're talking about theater, I feel like we're living through mad King Lear. I mean, he really is insane. In my yeah, it's it's oh, almost my-
0: like it's almost like George the second, or I think it was George the third. I forget who was the mad king, yeah. Yeah. the madness yeah. of King George. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it is, and, and it's odd because I mean, I it, it, and it's good to you know to have you on because I've had a couple of people who are involved in theater, but they're also involved in what I would call holiness or or um, using theatrical tactics to sort of. Um, in therapy to to cleanse the mind and you know to really focus on the spirit and i really believe i mean i can't think of a president that has made that has triggered so many people emotionally yeah as as trump i mean has he how's he affected your i guess spiritual life and i know that you are very Ah. very connected to your spirit
1: wow that's such an amazing question thank you for asking it honestly i think trump is here. I think the purpose of Trump, the big spiritual purpose, is to show us our own shadow, um, you know, to show us where, uh, you know, so what I've seen arising in myself is not pretty. I mean, like hatred, you know, I felt like visceral, like so much rage and, um, and uh, like a violence within myself and uh, snobbery. And like, you know, I think Trump was elected on white supremacy you know, basically he's the white supremacist president Yeah, and it's easy to condemn white supremacy, which I do. Um, then I have to look inside myself of like, where do I have supremacy inside me? You know, where do I, where am I feeling superior to other people? Where am I feeling like some people are more worth more? Some people are better than, you know, and looking at the shadow. So, um, I, I think this whole, his, the whole Trump, regime, and especially this last year is the word would be reckoning, you know, it's a time of reckoning, racial reckoning, political reckoning, emotional, spiritual reckoning, like reckoning with what's there, and especially the stuff we don't want to look at.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think of the uh, I think it was a Nietzsche statement where he says, in fighting demons, we cannot become demons or, or fighting evil, we cannot become evil ourselves. Yeah. Um, because you yeah. know we can very easily mimic the very thing that we're trying to um, fight against,
1: yeah. and
0: uh, and unfortunately you know a lot of people are motivated more by anger than by love. Unfortunately, right. and um, right. you know sometimes we have to watch ourselves you know to make sure that we're not parroting the very thing that we're we're fighting against. But it is a, an amazing civics lesson. I would never think I would. You'd think that these things happen on, in third world countries or right. in communist right. countries, but never right. in America. And right. here we are, you know.
1: Right. I mean, just like two weeks before the election of two thousand sixteen, I saw the production at Berkeley Rep of It, it Can't Happen Here, you know, it's an amazing play. Um who's it was that Sherwood Anderson? Who's who I can't remember the writer. Mm. But um it was, you know, and, and my husband and I said to each other uneasily, Well, ha, that's ha, you know, good play and can't happen here. And like two weeks later it happened here. So it's been, an, you know, erasing the denial. And yeah, and to paraphrase the Nietzsche, how do you combat hate without becoming hateful yourself? And I confess that I have not succeeded. You know, I've felt a lot of hatred sometimes during the last four years and I feel tremendous relief. And then when you heard Biden speak and Kamala Harris speak, you know, just to hear two grown grown-ups talking and making sense and being, moving and talking about empathy and compassion and uh, working together. I mean, I just, I was weeping then too. It's like, oh my God, it's been four years since I've heard a leader speak like a leader. Um, but again, I think we're living through mythic times and it's hard to live, you know, Plague, Mad King, you know, we have all these like really big things that, you know, are part of classic theater, and, but they're happening now
0: yeah it's 2020 has been really really very strange and and of course all of our um you know we're so used to our rituals we're so used yeah. to doing things every day and having our keys with the way it's supposed to be and yeah you know uh, our parking space right there and you know uh, it's interesting how we react when our lives are disrupted and right. um sometimes the lesson you know for ourselves is like hey listen you know just because things are normal things you know how will you react when things are not normal, I think uh, I think of Rod Serling's um, uh, the Twilight Zone episode, uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street. You know, everything is normal, but then things, strange things happen, and then all of a sudden people attack one another, right. only because things are not as normal as they used to be. And right. just it's it's a lesson, you know. If we, um, you know, if we're knocked out knocked out of our normalcy, how truly human are we? And sometimes, um, you know, it, 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 you know things that happen in life can be a reflection of ourselves. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned twenty sixteen when Trump was elected because it was the very next year that I worked with you. We yeah, uh, did the musical yeah, cafe yeah. and we did the chain. And mm-hmm. has anything happened with the chain? Is it has it? Because uh, you worked with uh, the late. Oh, I have the poster right there. Uh, Lua, Lauren Leonard.
1: Lauren Leonard. Yeah. Yeah, Leonard. Yeah. Yeah, he died just a few months before you and I started working together. He died wow. in early December two thousand sixteen. And then I got onto the Next Stages thing and, you know, pulled together a little excerpt from our show um, to do and, and found you to be my Chester, and, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Um, no, it's on pause. I mean, I feel like it needs another revision, um, which it probably does. And Lauren, of course, is not here to do that or to write the incidental music. We do have, you know, a full slate of songs that he wrote and he wrote beautiful music and... I I would like it to to stay alive. I both because I think it's a good play. I think it has things to say to people and you know also because it's the last thing that Lauren did and it's a beautiful thing and he poured his heart and soul in it and we really enjoyed working on it together. And when I, at the time I met you, I was really full of like, I need to carry this forward, but how am I going to carry this baby forward, you know, without my partner?
0: Oh, sure. And and I think you're working on other things as well. You know, the beautiful thing about the play, The Chain, although it was only a 20 minute, you know, uh, we talked a lot about the musical cafe last week,
1: mm-hmm. how
0: budding musical writers can get together and write, let's say, just snippets or excerpts of their play mm-hmm. to get it exposed and maybe it'll rise to the next level or you realize how many chain, you know what work it needs to be done, Mm -hmm. but it's still a wonderful venue. I mean, you know, we were at the um, Shotgun, Shotgun Players, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a wonderful venue, and we had a wonderful audience, and it's just a great place, and I met so many individuals that I've been working nonstop with. It's a wonderful thing about theater where you can connect with individuals like Nick Mandrakia Mm -hmm. and uh, a bunch of others who I met at that venue, and we've gone on to do other things, and so it's it's sort of the um, Really is like proverbial, like the chain. It's like you know, people are connecting one another, and yeah. then you, you move on yes. to other things. So, yeah. even if the chain sort of is in, on hiatus, it did some amazing things. Like I worked with Rachelle. I worked with her on yeah. my little musical. Uh, the very next, I think it was only a couple of months later.
1: Yeah, Nia, you did. That's right, yeah. Nia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, this is and now all theater's been disrupted, of course. And mm-hmm. you know, Richard and I've been working on something for a couple of years, and. Um, God knows when we'll be able to mount it. Um, but what what I'm coming around to is maybe it's enough, and maybe I'll do this with the chain. Like what we've got in with uh, the piece that I'm doing with Richard the shyest Witch is we've got some scenes that have been filmed um, you know with, and, and the songs have been recorded. And so we, you can put those little scenes up on YouTube and so people can get a taste of you know the, the songs scene it's not the same as seeing a whole play in a theater of course but it is something and maybe with the chain you're just making me think this that i could um produce like some little scenes of you know a song or two. Or oh, two oh sure
0: snippets and then people can decide wow really like that you can see how many yeah. likes or whatever i mean you know this is a good thing about youtube uh, you okay. can really sort of test the waters without really investing a lot of resources and you know what you're right. doing uh, just to find out, hey, is this going to work or not? And then if it does, if there's enough likes, then you can go further. Yeah, yeah. a great idea. So let's I want I, I'd love to get into an origin story. How did you get involved in theater? Where were you born and raised? And when, oh. when did you get when did the theater bug bite you?
1: Yeah, uh, I was born on the East Coast. I was born in Pennsylvania. My family moved to Massachusetts when I was two. So I was really raised in the suburbs of Boston. Um, my mother loved theater and um she acted in plays when she was in high school but I think she got kind of shy around I don't know I I wish she had gone further with it but she used to take me to plays when I was a kid and I specifically remember seeing a community theater production of um The Crucible when I was about 10. Arthur Miller. What's that?
0: Arthur Miller Arthur Miller yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. and I just I didn't breathe you know I, I was young enough so that I it was just real to me. I just remember I was like, oh, for the whole second act, you know, and um, and that bit me hard. And then um, I went to a camp, summer camp, where they put on plays. And um, one of the plays that the summer camp put on was Lorraine Hansberry's The Sign in Sidney Bruce Stein's Window. Um, and that's an amazing play. And I saw that when I was pretty young also. And I fell in love with Lorraine Hansberry and I carried her, plays around with me in my school bag you know in a high school and um you know so I just got an early sense of what it could be and what it could do and I saw Hair when I was pretty young too as a musical you know I wasn't into like um South Pacific or you know any of the old musicals but I loved Hair and then Jesus Christ Superstar and Godspell I know I'm dating myself but these were all yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember talking to, I forget who, maybe Joel Knopf. I remember <laughs> I, I had him on the A. But in any case, we we're, t- yeah, that, during that time, the 70s, musicals were sort of changing. You didn't have the yeah. Sondheim and the Mirage's and Heart and the standards way of producing musicals. It sort of borrowed from the 60s, the hippie generation. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know if you were old or are you, I mean, are you, do you consider yourself a, a hippie or were you too young to be that?
1: I was a little too young. I was born in 1958. So 1968, 69, Summer of Love, I was still a kid. Um, but I, I sort of in my sensibilities I am a hippie and I listen to all that music and I mean I used to listen to the hair my parents had the hair album and I would listen to it like come home from school junior high push all the furniture in the living room you know to the side put on the hair record and dance my you know just <laughs> you know and and also with Jesus Christ Superstar and also with Godspell those those records you know were a really big deal for me um, and I didn't even think of them as traditional musicals. Like, the musicals my high school put on were Carousel, which I thought was corny and uh, sexist and, you know, Once Upon a Mattress. I wasn't in any of those. But I was president of the drama club. We had I had, went to a high school that had both a drama club and then they also did musicals. And I, at that point, was a real snob about musicals. And, you know, I I was doing drama and it was, you know, it's intense. And I was like to play Tennessee Williams heroines who were dying of... Unnamed venereal diseases, and you know, like mm. that was my that was my wheelhouse, <laughs> and uh, and also I couldn't, I wasn't really a good singer. I'm not a great singer, so I couldn't. I was too shy to audition for a musical anyway.
0: But you saw yourself um, as an actress. I mean, did you yeah, did you I, I, being I on stage?
1: Yeah, hmm. I loved to act, and um, in another life I would have pursued it more thoroughly. Uh, I think again, I was shy. I got a little shy as I got older, but I loved it. Really, really loved it a lot.
0: Did you, um, where'd you go to college?
1: I went to college for two years at Emerson, which is a theater school. Um, My father was teaching there, not in the theater department. He was teaching in communications disorders, which is like audiology. Um, So I could go there for free. Um, And I regret that I didn't take more advantage of the theater that was there. Like I was at Emerson at the same time that guy, Dennis... What's his name? Uh he he's does a TV show about a firefighter. Oh, Dennis
0: Leary. Yeah, yeah. the uh he was a comedian yeah. and then he started doing uh, serious stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. He was a senior when I was like a freshman. Um so he, you know, and I never spoke to him. I mean, he was like a god even then and I was a lowly, you know, freshman, but um I wish I had I'd been a little bolder. Um but anyway, then I transferred to UMass after 2 years University of Massachusetts and I finished up there. Um, I, re- I, I love theater, but I also was really pulled towards social justice and languages and English. You know, I was writing a lot, and I hadn't figured out. It's so weird because I was doing writing, and I love theater, but I, I didn't really put playwriting together till much later. Even though in high school I wrote, um, I wrote a play, and I, was, I told you I was president of the drama club, so I produced mm-hmm a series of student written one act plays, you know, so I was doing all that stuff in high school. And then uh, I don't know, I, I got caught up in other things and I sort of forgot that I knew how to do that for a long, long time.
0: Yeah. I'm noticing that in academia, there's really not, I mean, no one really like, you know, the same thing with me, you know, I've written um, <clears throat> a, a, a lot of one acts and I wrote one full length play, but really, no one ever told me in college or in high school or whatever that playwriting was a path towards yeah. doing anything and even you know i took a class um berkeley rep Garrett graves has a uh, playwriting class right. and he says listen you're not going to get rich you know being writing a play unless you know you it goes and you get a tony or something like that but it really isn't like a clear path so i imagine literature maybe you know like maybe book writing is something that people do because you can get on i don't know the um the, the, the New York Times bestsellers list or something like that. Did you see literature as more of a path that rather than playwriting at the time?
1: Honestly, I was really groping, you know, in, in college. I mean, I they had to sort of put a gun to my head to make me declare a major. Like I was taking classes in every department. I I would have stayed, if I could have, I would have just stayed and gotten like three BAs in, you know, sociology. And I did end up with an English degree. And I guess I, I you know, I was really being, Put, my parents were like, get a teaching certificate, get a teaching certificate, which was very good advice, which I refused to follow. It was great advice. I'd never got a teaching certificate because I thought, oh, that's a girly thing. Like women, you know, are always being told they have to be nurses or teachers or secretaries. And I'm a feminist and I want to do, I don't want to teach. Well, it turns out I really love teaching. And, um, when I graduated, college with a BA in English and no idea what I was going to do. I I joined Vista Volunteers in Service to America. Ah, Vista, yeah. Yeah, and I and I got sent to Miami to work with Haitian refugees because it was 1981 and there was a whole influx of refugees coming into Miami at that time. Um, it, both Cuban, there were Cuban people and, uh, refugees cuz Castro had emptied his jails and sent everybody to Miami. And then a lot of Haitians were like just getting in these makeshift rafts and dinghies and and just desperately coming. Um, And because I speak French, I got put with working with Haitians, and some of my cohort in Vista got put with working with Cubans. And I got really caught up in social justice work with refugees, and I did that for years and I taught English as a second language. And that's when I discovered that, oh, I love teaching and I'm actually born to teach. And I didn't know that until I did wow. it. Wow. So I was resisting, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't, you know, my parents are both teachers and I was not going to be a teacher. I was going to be anything but a teacher. And no, course- no,
0: I totally understand that. Yeah. No, when I'm, when you mentioned Vista, I, one job that I had just before I came to the Bay Area, cause I'm originally from Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for the Corporation for National Service, which dealt with AmeriCorps, C and Vista. It was all right. sort of housed into one, at least the main office. And then they had the satellite offices where volunteers would go and help out people. Um, so what brought you to the Bay?
1: I um, met a man. Uh, after Vista, I hitchhiked across Canada with a crazy Frenchman who was a communist, couldn't get a, He couldn't get a visa to get into the United States because he was a communist. Long story. Uh, I left him in Vancouver because he was crazy. Hitchhiked down to the bay area and stayed with a girlfriend from high school i slept on her couch for a month and while i was here i met the man who became my first husband and um three years later he he joined me in massachusetts we lived there together for a few years we got married there and then he really wanted to come home to the bay so i followed you know i followed a man Um, but i fell in love with the area too i mean i was in love with the bay area and i I realized quickly that there was just much more opportunity for me here than in Boston, um, because i I didn't want to be in school. you know I didn't want to for whatever reason, once I was done with school, I was kind of done, and the Bay Area is a place where you can say, I'm a writer, i i want I could teach you know I've been hired to teach for years and years now, um, and I've just found my way here
0: yeah you know I've I've asked a lot of folks who are um because I think a lot of folks are transplants what was the Bay Area like because I I imagine you came what in the mid 80s or the 90s I came in
1: 1990 exactly New Year's Day
0: 1990 wow yeah I'm I'm sure it's it's night and day you know between the Bay Area now and and what it was then
1: yeah I mean it was just um well I mean the obvious things the rents were affordable and you know um the freeways were not totally clogged and and I mean it was difficult for me just because I was going through this big kind of quarter-life crisis or midlife crisis of like what am I doing here and I you know my family and my friends are on the East Coast and it took me a long time to adapt and adjust and find find my people find my thing and then my marriage started falling apart pretty soon after we got here and we we separated in 94 and I got divorced after that, and then I was on my own, you know, without my family here, and that was tough. But the Bay Area itself was, you know, it felt like, well, Boston's a kind of closed place, like where you have to prove yourself a little bit, and people are not quick to call you their friend. You have to kind of earn it, and here it feels like people don't make you go th- jump through hoops. You know, they, they'll be friendly right away, um, more so. Uh, yeah, it was just easier. I mean, I remember even when I separated from my husband and I needed to find an apartment, you know, I found an apartment for like $500 a month, which would be impossible now. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. uh, It's funny because I remember being invited. It's funny. I had a couple of uh, questions because you came in 1990. That was a year after the big earthquake. And I imagine, I don't know if you had just missed it or if you thought, wow, do I really want to go? Because, you know, things are a little crazy.
1: (laughs) No, we were we were trapped. We were on route because we took we drove across country in this, you know, beat up old 65 Ford. And we were in some tacky motel in like North Carolina, and the desk clerk said, we we wrote down our destination was San Francisco, and he said, um, oh, they just had a big earthquake, and we were like, ha, ha, ha. He was like, no, go turn on the TV, and we did, and it was like, oh my God, where are we? I was terrified. I was terrified. It looked like the whole marina was burning, my husband and I had a huge fight about would it be better to die by fire or drowning if you were on a bridge? <laughs> yeah.
0: oh, that's an interesting argument.
1: <laughs> I, I was so nervous. So scared. Um, yeah. But
0: it didn't turn it didn't you
1: to. Well, no, I mean, he had lived here his whole life. So he was a Berkeley boy. So he, you know, and then I sort of adapted like one does here. I mean, we all kind of live with, we know that there's earthquakes and we just live our lives here and yeah you know
0: there you go. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, and also I, I spent, I visited Boston. I've never been there. I, I lived in New York for five years. I went to school mm-hmm. and then I stayed an extra year. And I imagine Boston and New York are a little bit, the similarity is, yes, it is very multicultural, but people are in their little cliques or their little, you know, um, you yeah. can't, I can't walk, I can't be a black man and walk into, let's say, a, a, a an Italian neighborhood in Boston or New York. Absolutely. Right. Or there would be a fight or something like that. So it's very territorial. And you don't have that here in the Bay Area. I noticed that immediately when I came here. Yeah. Um, what was your first foray in theater? I mean, uh, did you get back into acting, or mm-hmm. uh, how did you how did you get yourself back?
1: You know, it's uh, back in Boston before I moved out here. I uh, there was a group called the Boston Theater Group, and they were doing a show called "A Theatrical Medita- Crooked Eclipses," a theatrical meditation on Shakespeare's sonnets. And I got into that, and it was an amazing experience, one of the best experiences of my life. And at one time, I had memorized you know, a couple dozen of Shakespeare's sonnets, and we just worked with the sonnets. We rehearsed every night, for, you know, five nights a week for four hours. I mean, it was incredible, big commitment. And um, we played with the sonnets. Each of those sonnets is like a little play all by itself, like a little 14-line play we moved, we, um, threw ourselves at the walls. I mean, it was, you know, there was m- singing, there was everything, you know, and we worked out pretty hard physically. It was just an incredible experience that I hope someday I get a chance to do something like that again, real deep immersion. Um, and of course I was really young then I didn't have a real job. And, um, so it was more possible to give that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I did that. Um, and then when I came out here, I tried to hook up in various ways with, with plays and Jawbone Theater. Do you know Louisa Tish at all? She's no. A, she's a storyteller. You should. You, she's great. And she had a little theater group called the Jawbone Theater Group. It was kind of a storytelling theater group. And I, I don't even remember how I got hooked up with them. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was looking. Well, I think it was the East Bay Express had, you know, ads in the back. For like uh, at that time, because things mm-hmm. it was before everything was online, so newspaper you know notices of like plays happening or auditions, and I, I was I always felt like I was on the outskirts of the theater world, trying to get a little toehold in, and meanwhile worrying about well what am I going to do for a job and having various different kinds of jobs and you know managing all the other stuff that you manage in life.
0: Yeah. uh, What are some of the, did you get back on stage? Did you work at any of the theater companies here?
1: I didn't work with anything major. I did little tiny things on stage, but nothing, you know, not not anything with a theater company that you would know. Um,
0: Okay. Like I know about the San Francisco French Festival, sometimes they have little things or.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I did a thing, you know, actually when, do you remember when Julia Butterfly was up in her tree for two years. Um, I'm
0: vaguely familiar with that. With that,
1: she, was, she did, this woman named Julia Butterfly did a two-year tree sit. She, she was up in a redwood tree for two years so that they, it wouldn't get cut down. She's protesting they cutting old-growth redwoods. And I thought that would be a great idea for a children's play. Um, so I said that to a friend of mine and we created a little theater group, um, so called Dolphin. Well, she had a theater group called Dolphin Tales story theater, and we just recruited some people and co-wrote all together. It was kind of a devised theater piece of, uh, the girl who climbed a tree and became a butterfly. And we ended up going to the fringe festival in Edinburgh, Scotland, which was an amazing experience. Wow. Yeah. It yeah. was 1999. And, mm-hmm. um, Uh, The whole group of us, like we did some kind of Airbnb thing. Like we we were all sleeping together, you know, in this tiny little apartment, like sleeping on the floor, and doing our little children's show in the morning, and then literally seeing theater all day long, like you know, because there's plays happening every in every spare nook and cranny. It was a beautiful experience for like two two or three weeks in Edinburgh. Wow! Wow! That was fantastic. Yeah, that was really great.
0: How did you get connected with um with musical cafe for play cafe
1: um it how did that happen? It was after lauren w- had just died and I must have seen something online and followed it up um, and I can't even remember I do remember that I was really freaked out uh, because I felt like I had this huge responsibility for this play that you know that Lauren and I had done and i and um What's his name rice rice clay have you i mean rice rice major rice major yeah Yeah. Mm-hmm. so kind to me because i had reached out to them and they were like yeah submit your thing and i was like but uh. and they sent me the you know what you have to do and i had to take this whole play that um, lauren and i well i wrote it but you know we collaborated every step of the way and i had to figure out what 20 minutes worth to take and which songs to choose and you know, it felt like a lot. I was kind of overwhelmed. And Rice kindly, like, met me for coffee and kind of talked me through it and said he would help me. And he did help me. And then Jerome was really kind. Like, everybody was so kind and has continued. You know, Jamie is like the soul of generosity. Richard is fantastic. Like, everybody's been incredibly kind and welcoming to me I, yeah. I still feel like I'm amazing. trying to
0: think of the uh, who was our director um oh shucks I oh, Jonathan, his... Levy. Jonathan was Levy yeah that's right he was he was yeah. fantastic as well yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah well he was somebody that I knew I joined this um improv troupe uh called Wing It um and that I had been doing so Jonathan and I had worked together in Wing It for years and years and we had a kind of relationship that you have when you're doing improv with somebody you know where you can just sort of throw the ball and you're not even looking and you know that they're going to run up behind you yeah
0: yeah There, there's definitely intimacy and uh, there's a sort of a spontaneity uh that, yeah. a connection that you have between two yeah
1: yeah so we had you know been on stage together a lot so i was on stage i sort of you know it's like all these different things were happening at, you know kind of overlappingly with jobs and you know boyfriends and marriages and all that stuff. But I, I got involved with a group called Interplay in like the early 2000s, 2002, 2001, 2002, um, which is a movement, um, vocal, storytelling, improv group. Well, Wing It was a group and Interplay is the process that we used. And I met Jonathan there. So I've known Jonathan for almost 20 years. And um, yeah, we had worked together. And then uh, he he had played... The part that Jerome played in our little show, he had played that before, or he, yeah, he had played the role.
0: Right, right. <clears throat> for those who don't know, so the chain is basically about uh, individuals who have dialysis or who have uh, a kidney, they need a kidney transplant. And right. it's basically about people connecting with one another and really loving and caring for one another, no, even no. if they belong in different um, uh, cultural dynamics. Like I, my character, I was a black man who needed a kidney and my wife played by Rachelle Bowman. And you may have heard Rachelle has moved. She,
1: she's in Georgia now.
0: Yeah, yeah, she's in Georgia now. And I was so sad to uh, see her go, but in any case, so she was my wife and she was a very staunchly religious woman who was like, no, 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 no. You know, you can't get your kidney from that individual because that individual is sinful. And of course the individual was, uh, I think a gay man, who no, it at, was
1: also it was also um, what is it? Is it Seventh Day Adventist? Or what's the other one? Jehovah Witness. Jehovah's
0: Witness. was Witness. That's right. She was Jehovah's yeah. Witness. And yes.
1: And thing where you, they don't do transplants because of some interpretation of a Bible verse. So it was it was that.
0: Right. But, right. But
1: also, they're pretty, you know, against, um, you know, uh, people being gay. So, yeah,
0: that. which yeah, which is unfortunate. And Jerome Gentis played that. But what you're saying prior to that, uh, it was Jonathan Levy who played that character.
1: He didn 't play your character, but he played the yeah he played the game yeah
0: he played yeah. yeah, he played jerome's character, yeah exactly, yeah. so yes, yeah. yeah, so and no it was wonderful i mean it was of course it was very small, uh you know it's just we only got a little a snippet of it, but it was still very, very touching and heartfelt and uh, anyone 's like you know a play about someone with a disability, well, now, in twenty twenty you know now illness is right there on the front map with you know right. everyone dealing with right. and also caring for one another, you know um You know, wearing a mask means that you care for yourself but you also care for someone else. So I think I I don't know I think that's a little snippet that I got from the chain. And like I said it was it was a nice wonderful experience and uh, did you enjoy your overall overall experience with the uh, play cafe musical cafe.
1: Oh so much because like I was just saying everybody was so kind and welcoming and cooperating and helpful and yeah
0: you know, and not just know. not just one piece but everyone i mean like you know having the the circle gathering and um it's it's very clear when jerome was uh, you know held when he ran it cuz i think he he's, he doesn't run it anymore i think it's run by someone else but he made sure that all of us were working towards one another it's not a competition between you know no
1: no 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 no
0: one group or another <laughs>
1: Richard was the executive director after him. And I don't know, there's like, there's the board there's Sandy. I mean, Richard has been running it for a while. Mm-hmm. I think when you did Nia, I think Richard was the, the head of it at that point. He, cause he was the one yeah.
0: You. Yeah. I've always, cause I, you know, I've always had a hard time separating play cafe with musical cafe, but yeah, right. between Jamie Greenblatt and um, Sandy Katston and also um Oh shucks, the uh, the woman who is uh, I, I think of her as a director more. Um, she's blonde. I can't think of her name, yeah. but in any case, but right. all of them, you know, they, they're yeah. very. It's a very Loretta, Loretta Jenka. That's oh, what yeah, I'm Loretta,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But uh, but no, everyone uh, makes sure that you know, although it may be only 20 minutes, that you get it's top quality, and you right. know. Um, Rice Major, when he was involved, you know, he made sure that the, you know, that the music was just right. And Richard Jennings, you know, he was sort of the overlord who made sure that everything and, and everyone had a very, very calm, uh, collective demeanor, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I want I wanted to talk more about writing because, you know, when you and I talked, you were like, oh, well, I haven't really done an awful lot. But you know, writing, just the very fact of communicating via the paper is it's sort of a lost art. I had um, a guest on. Richard Harder, who runs Off-Broadway West, and he's also a teacher, he -hmm. talked about, there was a New York Times article that said that young people don't know how to write anymore. They don't know how to write essays or I don't Mm -hmm. know what's happening in the schools today. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, you had to get on a typewriter, a manual typewriter, and really put, you know, think words together and really put stories together. Do you think, in your opinion, is it a lost art or do you agree with the article? I mean, what are you seeing? Um,
1: no, I mean I was a poet in the schools for twenty years. That's what I actually ended up doing professionally uh for a long time. Um I know there are kids kids are still people the impulse to put words on, down on paper and is still there. I, I don't think it's gone yeah. away. Completely. You
0: don't think it's been uh I don't know, cut that de- curtailed to, you know, there are a lot of folks who just text, you know, they text message or whatever. Uh they you know, not, not a lot of folks even write emails anymore. I I guess the younger generation, you know, um It's all just short text. I don't even know if people read, like read novels um, anymore. I mean,
1: I don't, I'm old fashioned. So I still read books, you know, like paper books and I Mm -hmm. hold them in my hand and I turn the pages and some people don't. And a lot of people are getting uh, more and more information auditory, you know, through their earbuds and listening to books on tape and stuff. I don't know if that's a, a, storytelling will never die. Storytelling is eternal. Storytelling is the oldest profession. Storytelling's been with us since we were all sitting around a fire before writing was invented. We had storytelling, and you know, playwrights are storytellers. Act, you know, theater makers are storytellers. Writers are storytellers, and so the forms change, but the essence of like me wanting to tell you something about my day and maybe act it out a little bit and dramatize it and you know the the wild beast that I, mm-hmm. you know, chased for miles through the underbrush and the dangers that I went through and the the heartbreak and the love and all that. You know, I'm always there's always gonna be people needing to convey their experience of being human to each other. So I, I don't think storytelling is in any danger. I think the forms are different.
0: Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. It takes me back to, you know, let's say a mother t- telling a child a story, you know, just before bedtime yes. or a grandmother telling, you know, the story of, you know, what their elders did or what have you and how engaging that can be. Um, no, you're absolutely right. As a has it been a, a difficult or easier transition being a playwright? Um, because, you know, they're all sorts of, you know, I guess there's a format or there's a way in which, you you know, you come into a theater well, let me ask you this. Have you had how many uh, how many plays, if any, have you had produced or uh, have worked on aside from uh, the chain?
1: Uh, probably about a half a dozen or so. I wrote a play called "Saying Kaddish with my sister. So, I mean, part, I, I just want to revisit the, the other question of like, when. how did you get reconnected with theater? One yeah, thing sure. Was, I, I saw Vagina Monologues in like 2001 or something when. Um, Eve Ensler came to town and she was doing it in San Francisco. I saw her I saw her doing it as a one-woman show in San Francisco, and then I went to a little tiny feminist bookstore in Berkeley and, and heard her speak, and I was just captivated. I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. I, you know, the power of this. And then I started working on a play called um, the Saying Kaddish with My Sister. Kaddish is the Jewish prayer for the dead. And um, the play was about two sisters, whose mother dies and they say, there's a tradition in Judaism where you say that prayer once a week every uh, for like 11 months after a loved one dies um, as a way to kind of, you know, it's a ritual that you do. So my sister and I did that after our mother died. We would we were long distance, we'd call each other up and say the, the prayer on the phone to each other and just, it was really nice. It was a great thing we, to stay connected in that way during that time. So in my play, though the sisters don't get along, and one of them is an Israeli settler who is living on the disputed territories, and she's very orthodox, and she's done that whole thing, and the other one's like a performance artist with pink hair, you know, who does stand up.
0: Hmm. One is connected, one's not connected with their co- right. With and their...
1: one is very connected to the re- to the religion and the tradition, but almost like too much so. Like I seem to be attracted to writing about people who are struggling hard with their religious. Uh, the difference between their religious commitment and, like, rea- you know, the rest of the world. Um, and the other one is, is kind of unmoored and untethered. And they, their connection is really with each other, but they, they have to fight to get it back. Um, and that got produced. Um, there's a little theater. There's a theater in West Bloomfield, Illinois, uh, right outside Detroit, called the Jewish Ensemble Theater, Jet. And they took it and they, they did a real full production of it. So I did, you know, that was awesome. Awesome. Now, Wow, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah. I would yeah. have loved to have seen that. It's funny when you were mentioning that I did a play, um, Civil War Christmas, and mm-hmm. there was a little piece where, um, and it was wonderful, pe- it was wonderful collaboration where all sorts of cultures uh, got to have their stories told through this uh, telling, and it was told during the Civil War era. But there's a part where uh, one woman has us chant, Yit Kadal and uh yeah that's
1: the first word in the kaddish yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly and of course uh, all of us got an education on uh i guess the jewish tradition and it was sung at the same time of silent night uh Mm -hmm. which was very very it's a wonderful interesting mixture of judaism and christianity wow um so it was it was very very cool uh the one question that we've had a bunch of uh playwrights on we've had um Conrad Paganaban, who writes uh, with Stiff and um, Jean, uh, Jeannie Baroga, and uh, also Scott Munson, and a bunch of others. And I've always one question that I have: writing, how do you find different voices? Um, let's say you have to write a character, like you know, in the chain, you are writing uh, a black character and a black right. female character, and let's say someone from um, who is Jehovah's Witness. Um, you know, as a man, it's difficult for me or I have to have respect for writing a, a female role, because mm-hmm. I have to really understand what it is to be a woman as much mm-hmm. as I possibly can. How do you do it? I mean, is it just listening to other people? Is it listening to their stories? How do you f- step out of your, you know, our proverbial box as a writer to, to write uh, in, in other people's words or languages?
1: That's such a great question, I think with great humility, <laughs> with tremendous, huge amount of humility, I mean, I, I've i been actually reflecting on, you know, this last year, there's been this incredible, um, long overdue emergence of um, black voices, and in the theater world, as you know, you know, saying, we want to be the makers, you know, we are, I mean, there already are black theater makers, but like, I have a question in my mind now. I want to be able to write black characters and all kinds of characters, but I don't want to overstep, and I don't want to be presuming. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, I want to write plays in which everybody can show up, you know, in which I can write about any character that I want. But I also think that there's a lot of stories that black playwrights are saying this is our material, and you know. and they're right you know it is so I'm 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 wondering about that it's a big question to me of like what do I have the right to write about
0: yeah and I don't think it's impossible I mean I think about um I think Steven Spielberg had um written oh shucks uh The Color Purple or at least he was right. part of the production of Color Purple and there was a bit of controversy oh gee you right. know Steven Spielberg is a Jewish guy how can he do that but right. it still rang true and you right. know, we still got to see a wonderful performance by Whippy Goldberg. And uh, so, you know, speaking as a black man, I don't see that much of an issue. I mean, when someone says, "Hey, I'm in control, I'm a white person. You're not going to have control or I'll give you a little bit of control, but I'm holding on to what I have." You right. say that a lot. So when I hear the struggle of black artists uh, wanting a greater voice in the theater community, I'm not sure if it's about, you know, uh, writers you know, Mm. usurping on the Black experience, but more uh, executives or producers or Mm. those who own or, you know, like uh, executive directors, basically, you know, um, saying I'm holding on to my power and I don't want to give up my power just because you want, you know, us to be on stage. So I don't see anything wrong with it, like you know when I did the chain, I thought that the right the characters that me and Rachel played rang true, it rang very true, very and it's one of those things that you know we really don't talk about, you know like you know religious differences. It gets to be a problem when you have stereotypes and cliches right and i'm I'm sure you are attuned to that as well, like I'm sure there are Jewish you know cliches that you know that 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 really get grates on your nerves as well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but, you know, um, I started out talking about Lorraine Hansberry's beautiful play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. It's an amazing play, and um, the main character, Sidney Brewstein, is a Jewish man, and Lorraine Hansberry was a black woman, black lesbian woman. But she had been married to a Jewish man for years, and she was very familiar, and she lived in New York, and she she knew that guy. She knew that character very well. He was not a stereotype. He was... He was an archetype, but he w- he was real, and she wrote him beautifully because she 's a strong, r- beautiful writer and he rang true, so that gives me courage because um, you know she was depicting her world, which was made up of black and white people, and it wasn't you know she didn't live in an all black world she lived her friendships and her intimate relationships covered the waterfront and Um, So, I mean, it's just like what you were saying about writing women. You don't want to have plays that don't have any women in them, but you're just aware that when you go to write women that you want to be careful to, you know, write them as fully and as three-dimensionally as you can. And probably, you know, the next time I write a black character, I mean, I'm sure I I will. I share my work with friends who, you know, come from different communities who can hopefully help point out to me if I'm slipping, if I'm stereotyping, if I'm, you know, if I got it
0: wrong. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's the function of the um, uh, stage readings. You know, you right. have like, let's say, one or two or three stage readings, and you have someone who will give you good constructive criticism to tell you, hey, you know, what you know, what's right or what's wrong. And that's actually a wonderful question. Um, the collaborative process, you know, like, mm-hmm. let's say you alone and a lot of writers, you know, are sort of sort of isolated and, you know, you write whatever you've written. And yeah. then you throw it out to actors and directors, and you sort of hope that they will uh, cherish, you know, your proverbial baby. You know, that's right. how I look at my pieces. Yeah. And sometimes I I get a little nervous because I'm like, hey, you know, oh, is, is that person approaching it the correct way? Um, how do you feel about, let's say, you know, giving your? Have you had an ex- a bad experience uh, working with someone who may not have respected your material?
1: Not. Bad, bad. I mean, when the, the production in more often, I have been surprised by directors and actors bringing out things in my words. God bless you. Thank God you. Bless you. Don't suppress a sneeze. Exactly, exactly. I just have to move the away. Never hold back a sneeze, you, you'll blow out your eustachian tubes. Um, I've had more often the opposite experience of um, feeling like the director and the actors brought out more layers and depth in my work than I even knew was there. So, you know, they bring to life things that are two-dimensional on the page. I mean, I have so much respect for actors because they take a two-dimensional paper and they create a fully fleshed, three-dimensional human experience out of it. Um, I know that the production in um, Illinois that I mentioned, you know, I got I wasn't able to fly back and forth to Illinois for rehearsals because of money. Um, so I only got there for the final thing and by then it had all been set. And if I had been there earlier, I would have, you know, if, I would have piped up and I couldn't and there were some things that I would have done differently. But overall, just to get something up is great. And and I also wanted to say one more thing about the racial piece. Um, Norm, you're Norman, you're... A, Norman, yeah. Norman yeah. G. Yeah, Norman G. Um, you know he does. He often does the play cafe. He's often the actor there. That and so I had written a play. There was two a man and a woman around a hot tub, and Norman played the man at a play cafe. Just table read, cold read. He was great. He killed it. I hadn't originally conceived of that character as black, but listening to Norman read it, I thought he could be black. You know, I mean. Why not? And, and so, you know, there's also that thing of like um, writing a character and realizing that, yeah, if a black actor plays him, it'll bring it'll sort of look a li- it'll it'll bring a different angle to things that a different edge to things that might be really cool. Um, and so, yeah,
0: yeah. And that's, you know, and minority actors, we love that, you know, say it's like, well, this character wasn't really written for a black person. But, oh, wait a minute. That's a good read. Okay, maybe. You know, yeah, and sudden- I mean, if
1: I, I would cast Norman in that in a minute, you know, and, you know, I, I I think a lot of my characters tend to sound Jewish when they start really talking, you know, cause those are the voices that are really embedded in my head. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe it could be a black Jew, you know, I mean, there are the, they exist, you know. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I don't know if you
0: know this, but you know, Norman is married to Mara who was a Jewish woman. And, you know, so he practices a lot of the uh, Jewish, Jewish traditions. So.
1: Well, he was, he was nailing that dialogue and that sort of fast snappy um aggressive you know intellectually aggressive way that that character yeah was- he knew the yeah. language yeah he knew the yeah, rhythm he had that so i was like oh norman could play this guy <laughs> um and, <you> know. <laughs> yeah if we ever could get a production with a hot tub on the stage which i think would be really hard to- i think it should actually be a radio play in which case nobody will even know and it doesn't matter so Sure.
0: Sure. Are you seeing, because you mentioned being a bit of a feminist and I'm sure you're still a feminist. I mean, you're, you're a teacher and, um, are you seeing, are you seeing a lot of, uh, proper representation of women, let's say on stage or even as directors or whatever here in the Bay area?
1: Yes. I think there's really great, um, there's great feminist theater here and there's a lot of strong, I mean, going to play cafe, those table read things. And, um, I used to go regularly, um, I haven't been for the last while, because I've been teaching on Thursday nights a lot, and um, yeah, there's a lot of, as you know, really powerful women in the Bay Area theater scene. I'm sure they're, you know, still the statistics overall nationally are not good in terms of women getting their plays produced. Uh, That needs to move. But you know, one of the other projects I've been involved with is, when I got involved with doing um, The Chain, I met Sheila Ramesh, who was the music director um, for the for that for that um, class of the chain. You know, for May to, uh, of 2017, and she and I have collaborated on a song cycle, a feminist song cycle called "We Are Not Afraid of the Dark," that was supposed to have. We were, we were had a performance scheduled for June 1st in New York City with three professional singers, uh, singer-actors. And it had been an amazing process. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic and everything. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. we'll get to do it next year.
0: Ho- yeah, hopefully in the future. While yeah. I, I think we have about 10 more minutes left, but I, um, I see that you are the writing salon. Can you tell me about the writing salon?
1: Oh yeah, happily. Um, it's a school for grown-ups who want to um, write, and so it's people like yourself who have day jobs and, you know, are not ready to enroll in, like, a graduate program necessarily, but who, you know, really want to take a writing class, and we, we offer a variety of classes. There's screenwriting and playwriting. I've been teaching a memoir class for decades there called Write from Real Life, which I love. So I have people from all walks of life in my classes. Um, Some of them have, you know, MFAs in writing. Some of them have never written before. You know, there's a really wide range. Um, They come to the class because, you know, they've had experiences in their lives and they want to write about them and they want to learn how to shape the narrative. And I actually have been using a lot of what I've learned in playwriting to help people shape their memoirs. Because you know, to make an arc, a character arc, to have uh, a hero's journey, to have a beginning, middle, and end, all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, you that know, is learning, fantastic.
1: Learning in one genre, something. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, we'll totally <clears throat> we'll promote that. Uh, the, uh, the 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 um, writing salon. Is it a uh, is it a paid paid class or um, can can anyone join?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's paid. Um, Anyone can join. It is, you know, you do have to pay. Um, the website is writing salons.com. Currently, all the classes are on Zoom. Um, they used to have like some remote classes, and then I was usually teaching on site. I didn't want to teach on Zoom because, you know, I like being in a room with people. I like getting out of my house when I can. But um, it's actually turned out to be better than I feared. Zoom is actually working pretty well. So.
0: Um, now that, no, that's fantastic. I was just thinking because <clears throat> I had a, a writing teacher, actually an acting teacher, but uh, her name was Akonke, and uh, she, this is when I was in high school, and she got all of us to write a journal, and she said, I want you to keep a journal, and of course, we were 15 years old, and you're we like, oh, a journal, what are we going to write about? And of course, we didn't have any life, life experiences to write about, just writing about, you know, I went to school, and there's this girl that I like, and blah, 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 but ironically enough, I have kept the journal off and on from 1985 up to now. I write a journal every single day, um, even as of now, and it has really, really helped. I mean, just talking in writing sp- in specifically, I think it's the one medium that is so important. I mean, it's important in the job market because you're going to have to write a letter, let's say, let's say an employment a cover letter to gain employment. Right. You'll have to do some sort of a dissertation at the job or something like that. You'll have to maybe make a speech. You'll have to write a speech. So creative writing, I mean, really, the arts have sort of been poo-pooed uh, by a lot of folks who are like, hey, be a doctor, be a lawyer, you know, be other things. But really creative writing is something that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. But I would think it's probably the most important thing, the most important medium Mm -hmm. um, for for individuals to to take up. I mean, all of our great leaders, we remember them from what their speeches. Like I think of Kennedy. I think of even uh, Mm -hmm. Peggy Newton, who wrote the speech for George Bush, you know, a thousand points of lights and all that sort Mm -hmm. of stuff. But um, writing, mm. something that we take for granted, don't you think?
1: I do. Yeah. And I happen to know that you're a beautiful writer because I read Four Men in Paris and it's an amazing play. Oh, thank you. Was. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, I, I read that and I was like, damn, he! this is great. <laughs> <laughs> this is really great. Yeah. You're...
0: Thank yeah, thank you so very, very much. Yeah, I uh, it's one of those things that had been percolating in my head and finally I was like, you know what, I, let me put this thing on paper. So. I I would I would encourage anyone who is you know listening to the yay, you know pick a paper and, and pick up a pencil and paper or, or pull up your um, Microsoft Word document and just you know start writing and maybe just a bunch of crap, but you know eventually it will become something amazing. And also, you know join a class like you know the um, the writers. Uh, I got to open up my thing, the writing salon. The
1: writing salon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, check us out. There's, there, you know, there's all these different classes. Um, there is playwriting and there is screenwriting and there's also memoir and fiction and poetry and like all of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. where do you see yourself in the future? What do you, what do you want to do in, for the next, I don't know, five or ten years or so? Do you have any major plans?
1: Well. Um, I've really kind of fallen in love with songwriting. Um, and I, I love writing lyrics and that was kind of a later, later in life discovery. Like, you know, I grew up, I think in the golden era of songwriting, like Joni Mitchell and, you know, Bob Dylan and all those guys were just doing amazing songwriting and I, and I wrote poetry and I am a poet and I've got, you know, four books of poetry out and, um, I don't know why I didn't put it together until relatively later in life that, oh, I could write songs. And so I've been, you know, kind of studying music and with my husband, I don't write melodies, I write lyrics and collaborate with composers and I love collaborating. So if I could write some really good songs and they could get out there, I would be so happy. Um, I'm sure I will be continuing to write poems because I just always do. I would love to be Part of a theater group, you know. Once the pandemic is over and we can actually be together, I mean, my dream would be to be part of a theater group where I could do some writing, but also some of everything. You know, be be do some of the performing, some of the set painting, just you know, be in one of those groups where an old fashioned theater group where where people all pitch in and do everything. Um, I'll probably can. I've written essays, you know, personal essay. I mean, I just don't like to confine myself, so. Um, I, ho- I hope I get to continue to be of service in some way and also continue to create, make things, because
0: Yeah, yeah I'm, 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 sure, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you have enough, I was just thinking, I'm sure you have enough material to do sort of an anthology, you know, let's say the complete works of Alison Luderman.
1: Uh At some point, I'll probably do a collected of the poems, you know, I mean, I hope so if I get, an, you know, another book out at some point, that would be fun um, but I'm just always interested. I think most makers are. I'm always interested in what I'm just doing right now or next. You know, it's not like there's a huge, there's not a big plan. There never has been like a 10-year plan or a five-year plan. But it's always like right now Richard and I are working on the next draft of The Shyest Witch. And we just wrote another song. And after I get off the yay with you, I'm going to go into rehearsal with him and with our actor who's in Baltimore who's playing the witch and we'll rehearse her her for that song um and then you know we'll write another song <laughs> you know, at some point after this one's really set you know we'll, we'll put it up on youtube yeah. and then we'll write another song keep going so
0: yeah you have a newsletter as well right I th- i'm looking right. at your um is it desire zoo or was that just one little segment or is it called desire zoo
1: no desire zoo was my next to last book i just um released another book of poetry in september called in the time of great fires the book before that was called desire zoo my newsletter just comes out once a month and you can sign up for it anybody can sign up for it by going to my website at dot net. yeah and um,
0: we'll have a link to it that people can just click you. on
1: yeah So, and the newsletter is just like whatever I'm thinking about. It's often lately been political, um, but kind of with a spiritual and creative twist on it.
0: Yeah, which is what we all need. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I think the newsletter is fantastic and, um, and it sounds like you have other projects or whatever. So we'll, we'll put a link to all of that as well as the writing salon. Uh, We've hit the one hour mark. So I, um, did you enjoy yourself?
1: yes my god this hour (laughs) flew by in a minute i'm like really an hour are you sure
0: yeah no no it was (laughs) fantastic it was fantastic you know i mean they're you know when a lot of people think about theater they think oh you know i need to you know do my resume and get this you know uh acting gig and perform here or there so i can get my equity credits and i can move on to la or new york or whatever but then there you have individuals who are like, hey, I just want to form a community. I just want to be around people who want to create, who yeah. want to put out some good vibes, some good, you know, karma out in the world. Right. To, uh, and, and, you know, we, and we need people like that. And I consider you to be a person just like that. So,
1: Thank you so much. I'm so grateful that I met you and that we're still connected even through this crazy time. And yeah.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. No, yeah. Thank you so much. All righty. So uh, I will put this on YouTube and also uh, the um, our podcast, uh, the podcast app. For those who are listening, uh, you're probably watching this on YouTube. If you are, please like and subscribe. Uh, tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And if you're listening on the uh, podcast app, we're on all podcasts, all major podcast apps, uh, especially um, uh, Spotify, and. Um, If you're a Android user, you can use the SoundCloud app, or just go on SoundCloud.com, and you will find us. The Yay was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise, or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. I'm at Red Space Clay. Norman is at HoosierHoosier.com. Allison, do you use any social media?
1: I do. I'm on Facebook. Um, just my name. Um, I'm on Instagram, but I never ever do anything like that. <laughs> It's pretty useless. If
0: people want to um, reach you directly, uh, what do you recommend?
1: Um, uh, go to my website. You can contact me through the website at AllisonLuderman.net or you can message me on Facebook.
0: Maybe there you me. go. Yeah. Yeah, if you're looking for a, uh, a songwriter, a playwright, a poet, an all around great writer, you can't go wrong with Allison Luderman. All right, Allison, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. And as Norman and I always say, we got to find a better sign off. And we are out.